Volume 1, Chapter 12b of The Mysteries of Adolfo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 12b. Did not ask to remain at home lest her request should be attributed to an improper motive. When she retired to her own room, the little fortitude which had supported her in the presence of her relation forsook her. She remembered only that Valancourt, whose character appeared more amiable from every circumstance that unfolded it, was banished from her presence, perhaps for ever, and she passed the time in weeping, which according to her aunt's direction she ought to have employed in dressing. This important duty was, however, quickly dispatched, though when she joined Madame Chiron at table her eyes betrayed that she had been in tears, and drew upon her a severe reproof. Her efforts to appear cheerful did not entirely fail when she joined the company at the house of Madame Clerval, an elderly widow lady who had lately come to reside at Toulouse on an estate of her late husband. She had lived many years at Paris in a splendid style, had naturally a gay temper, and, since her residence at Toulouse, had given some of the most magnificent entertainments that had been seen in that neighborhood. These excited not only the envy, but the trifling ambition of Madame Charon, who, since she could not rival the splendor of her festivities, was desirous of being ranked in the number of her most intimate friends. For this purpose she paid her the most obsequious attention, and made a point of being disengaged whenever she received an invitation from Madame Clerval, of whom she talked wherever she went, and derived much self-consequence from impressing a belief on her general acquaintance that they were on the most familiar footing. The entertainments of this evening consisted of a ball and supper. It was a fancy ball, and the co company danced in groups in the gardens which were very extensive. The high and luxuriant trees under which the groups assembled were illuminated with a profusion of lamps, disposed with taste and fancy. The gay and various dresses of the company, some of whom were seated on the turf, conversing at their ease, observing the cotillions, taking refreshments, and sometimes touching sportively a guitar, the gallant manners of the gentlemen, the exquisitely capricious air of the ladies, the light fantastic steps of their dances, the musicians with the lute, the hot-boy, and the tabor, seated at the foot of an elm, and the sylvan scenery of woods around were circumstances that unitedly formed a characteristic and striking picture of a French festivity. Emily surveyed the gaiety of the scene with a melancholy kind of pleasure, and her emotion may be imagined when, as she stood with her aunt looking at one of the groups, she perceived Valancourt, saw him dancing with a young and beautiful lady, saw him conversing with her with a mixture of attention and familiarity, such as she had seldom observed in his manner. She turned hastily from the scene, and attempted to draw away Madame Chiron, who was conversing with Signor Cavigny, and neither perceived Valancourt, or was willing to be interrupted. A faintness suddenly came over Emily, and unable to support herself, she sat down on a turf bank beneath the trees, where several other persons were seated. One of these, observing the extreme paleness of her countenance, inquired if she was ill, and begged she would allow him to fetch her a glass of water for which politeness she thanked him, but did not accept it. 
Her apprehension lest Valancourt should observe her emotion made her anxious to overcome it, and she succeeded so far as to recompose her countenance. Madame Chiron was still conversing with Cavigny, and the Count Beauvillers, who had addressed Emily, made some observations upon the scene, to which she answered almost unconsciously, for her mind was still occupied with the idea of Valancourt, to whom it was with extreme uneasiness that she remained so near. Some remarks, however, which the Count made upon the dance, obliged her to turn her eyes toward it, and at that moment Valancourt's met hers. Her colour faded again. She felt that she was relapsing into faintness, and instantly averted her looks, but not before she had observed the altered countenance of Valancourt on perceiving her. She would have left the spot immediately had she not been conscious that this conduct would have shewn him more obviously the interest he held in her heart, and having tried to attend to the Count's conversation and to join in it, she at length recovered her spirits. But when he made some observation on Valancourt's partner, the fear of shewing that she was interested in the remark would have betrayed it to him, had not the Count, while he spoke, looked towards the person of whom he was speaking. The lady, said he, dancing with that young chevalier, who appears to be accomplished in everything, but in dancing, is ranked among the beauties of Toulouse. She is handsome, and her fortune will be very large. I hope she will make a better choice in a partner for life than she has done in a partner for the dance, for I observe that he has just put the set into great confusion. He does nothing but commit blunders. I am surprised that with his air and figure he has not taken more care to accomplish himself in dancing. Emily, whose heart trembled at every word that was now uttered, endeavoured to turn the conversation from Valancourt by inquiring the name of the lady with whom he danced. But before the Count could reply, the dance concluded, and Emily, perceiving that Valancourt was coming towards her, rose and joined Madame Chiron. "'Here is the Chevalier Valancourt, madame,' said she in a whisper. "'Pray let us go.' Her aunt immediately moved on, but not before Valancourt had reached them, who bowed lowly to Madame Chiron, and with an earnest and dejected look to Emily, with whom, notwithstanding all her effort, an air of more than common reserve prevailed. The presence of Madame Chiron prevented Valancourt from remaining, and he passed on with a countenance whose melancholy reproached her for having increased it. Emily was called from the musing fit into which she had fallen by the Count Beauvillers, who was known to her aunt. "'I have your pardon to beg, mademoiselle,' said he, "'for a rudeness which you will readily believe was quite unintentional. "'I did not know that the chevalier was your acquaintance "'when I so freely criticised his dancing.' "'Emily blushed and smiled, and Madame Chiron spared her the difficulty of replying. "'If you mean the person who has just passed us,' said she, "'I can assure you that he is no acquaintance of either mine or Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert. "'I know nothing of him.' "'Oh, that is the Chevalier Valancourt,' said Cavigny carelessly, and looking back. "'You know him, then?' said Madame Chiron. "'I'm not acquainted with him,' replied Cavigny. "'You don't know, then, the reason I have to call him impertinent. "'He has had the presumption to admire my niece.' "'If every man deserves the title of impertinent who admires Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert,' replied Cavigny, "'I fear there are a great many impertinents, and I am willing to acknowledge myself one of the number.' "'Oh, Signor,' said Madame Chiron, with an affected smile, "'I perceive you have learnt the art of complimenting since you came into France. "'But it is cruel to compliment children, since they mistake flattery for truth.' Cavigny turned away his face for a moment, and then said with a studied air, "'Whom, then, are we to compliment, madame? "'For it would be absurd to compliment a woman of refined understanding. "'She is above all praise.' As he finished the sentence, he gave Emily a sly look, and the smile that had lurked in his eye still forth. 
She perfectly understood it, and blushed for Madame Chiron, who replied, "'You are perfectly right, signor. No woman of understanding can endure compliment.' "'I have heard signor Montoni say,' rejoined Cavigni, "'that he never knew but one woman who deserved it.' "'Well!' exclaimed Madame Chiron, with a short laugh, and a smile of unutterable complacency. "'And who could she be?' "'Oh!' replied Cavigni, "'it is impossible to mistake her, for certainly there is not more than one woman in the world who has both the merit to deserve compliment and the wit to refuse it. Most women reverse the case entirely.' He looked again at Emily, who blushed deeper than before for her aunt, and turned from him with displeasure. "'Well, signor,' said Madame Chiron, "'I protest you are a Frenchman. I never heard a foreigner say anything half so gallant as that.' "'True, madam,' said the Count, who had been some time silent, and with a low bow, but the gallantry of the compliment had been utterly lost, but for the ingenuity that discovered the application. Madame Chiron did not perceive the meaning of this too satirical sentence, and she therefore escaped the pain which Emily felt on her account. "'Oh, here comes Signor Montoni himself,' said her aunt. "'I protest I will tell him all the fine things you have been saying to me.' The Signor, however, passed at this moment into another walk. "'Pray, who is it that has so much engaged your friend this evening?' asked Madame Chiron, with an air of chagrin. "'I have not seen him once.' "'He had a very particular engagement with the Marquis La Riviere, replied Cavigny, "'which has detained him, I perceive, till this moment, "'or he would have done himself the honour of paying his respects to you, madam, sooner, "'as he commissioned me to say. "'But I know not how it is. "'Your conversation is so fascinating that it can charm even memory, I think, "'or I should certainly have delivered my friend's apology before.' "'The apology, sir, would have been more satisfactory from himself,' said Madame Chiron, whose vanity was more mortified by Montoni's neglect than flattered by Cavigny's compliment. Her manner at this moment, and Cavigny's late conversation, now wakened a suspicion in Emily's mind, which, notwithstanding that some recollection served to confirm it, appeared preposterous. She thought she perceived that Montoni was paying serious addresses to her aunt, and that she not only accepted them, but was jealously watchful of any appearance of neglect on his part. That Madame Chiron at her years should elect a second husband was ridiculous, though her vanity made it not impossible. But that Montoni, with his discernment, his figure, and pretensions, should make a choice of Madame Chiron, appeared most wonderful. Her thoughts, however, did not dwell long on the subject. Nearer interest pressed upon them. Valancourt, rejected of her aunt, and Valancourt dancing with a gay and beautiful partner, alternately tormented her mind. As she passed along the gardens, she looked timidly forward, half fearing and half hoping that he might appear in the crowd, and the disappointment she felt on not seeing him told her that she had hoped more than she had feared. Montoni soon after joined the party. He muttered over some short speech about regret for having been so long detained elsewhere, when he knew he should have the pleasure of seeing Madame Chiron here, and she, receiving the apology with the air of a pettish girl, addressed herself entirely to Cavigny, who looked archly at Montoni, as if he would have said, I will not triumph over you too much. I will have the goodness to bear my honours meekly, but look sharp, signor, or I shall certainly run away with your prize. The supper was served in different pavilions in the gardens, as well as in one large saloon of the chateau, and with more of taste than either of splendour or even of plenty. Madame Chiron and her party supped with Madame Clerval in the saloon, and Emily, with difficulty, disguised her emotion when she saw Valancourt placed at the same table with herself. 
There, Madame Chiron, having surveyed him with high displeasure, said to some person who sat next to her, Pray, who is that young man? It is the Chevalier Valancourt, was the answer. Yes, I am not ignorant of his name, but who is this Chevalier Valancourt that thus intrudes himself at this table? The attention of the person to whom she spoke was called off before she received a second reply. The table at which they sat was very long, and Valancourt being seated with his partner near the bottom, and Emily near the top, the distance between them may account for his not immediately perceiving her. She avoided looking to that end of the table, but whenever her eyes happened to glance towards it, she observed him conversing with his beautiful companion, and the observation did not contribute to restore her peace, any more than the accounts she heard of the fortune and accomplishments of this same lady. Madame Chiron, to whom these remarks were sometimes addressed, because they supported topics for trivial conversation, seemed indefatigable in her attempts to depreciate Valancourt, towards whom she felt all the petty resentment of a narrow pride. "'I admire the lady,' said she, "'but I must condemn her choice of a partner.' "'Oh, the Chevalier Valancourt is one of the most accomplished young men we have,' replied the lady, to whom this remark was addressed. "'It is whispered that Mademoiselle Demery and her large fortune are to be his.' "'Impossible!' exclaimed Madame Chiron, reddening with vexation. "'It is impossible that she can be so destitute of taste. "'He has so little the air of a person of condition "'that if I did not see him at the table of Madame Clerval, "'I should never have suspected him to be one. "'I have besides particular reasons for believing the report to be erroneous.' "'I cannot doubt the truth of it,' replied the lady gravely, "'disgusted by the abrupt contradiction she had received "'concerning her opinion of Valancourt's merit. "'You will, perhaps, doubt it,' said Madame Chiron, "'when I assure you that it was only this morning that I rejected his suit.' This was said without any intention of imposing the meaning it conveyed, but simply from a habit of considering herself to be the most important person in every affair that concerned her niece, and because literally she had rejected Valancourt. "'Your reasons are indeed such as cannot be doubted,' replied the lady, with an ironical smile." any more than the discernment of the Chevalier Valancourt, added Cadigny, who stood by the chair of Madame Chiron, and had heard her arrogate to herself, as he thought, a distinction which had been paid to her niece. His discernment may be justly questioned, Signor, said Madame Chiron, who was not flattered by what she understood to be an encomium on Emily. Alas! exclaimed Cadigny, surveying Madame Chiron with affected ecstasy. How vain is that assertion, while that face that shape, that air, combine to refute it. Unhappy Valancourt, his discernment has been his destruction. Emily looked surprised and embarrassed. The lady, who had lately spoke, astonished, and Madame Chiron, who, though she did not perfectly understand this speech, was very ready to believe herself complimented by it, said smilingly, Oh, Signor, you are very gallant. But those who hear you vindicate the Chevalier's discernment will suppose that I am the object of it. "'They cannot doubt it,' replied Cavigny, bowing low. "'And would that not be very mortifying, signor?' "'Unquestionably it would,' said Cavigny. "'I cannot endure the thought,' said Madame Chiron. "'It is not to be endured,' replied Cavigny. "'What can be done to prevent so humiliating a mistake?' rejoined Madame Chiron. 
Alas, I cannot assist you, replied Cavigni, with a deliberating air. Your only choice of refuting the calumny, and of making people understand what you wish them to believe, is to persist in your first assertion, for when they are told of the chevalier's want of discernment, it is possible they may suppose he never presumed to distress you with his admiration. But then again, that diffidence which renders you so insensible to your own perfections, they will consider this, and Valancourt's taste will not be doubted, though you arraign it. In short, they will, in spite of your endeavours, continue to believe, what might very naturally have occurred to them without any hint of mine, that the chevalier has taste enough to admire a beautiful woman. "'Oh, this is very distressing,' said Madame Chiron, with a profound sigh. "'May I be allowed to ask what is so distressing?' said Madame Clerval, who was struck with the rueful countenance and doleful accent with which this was delivered. "'It is a delicate subject,' replied Madame Chiron. "'A very mortifying one to me.' "'I am concerned to hear it,' said Madame Clerval. "'I hope nothing has occurred this evening particularly to distress you.' "'Alas, yes, within this half-hour, and I know not where the report may end. "'My pride was never so shocked before, but I assure you the report is totally void of foundation.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Madame Clerval. "'What can be done? "'Can you point out any way by which I can assist or console you?' "'The only way by which you can do either,' replied Madame Chiron, "'is to contradict the report wherever you go.' "'Well, but pray inform me what I am to con contradict.' "'It is so very humiliating that I know not how to mention it,' continued Madame Chiron. "'But you shall judge. "'Do you observe that young man seated near the bottom of the table, "'who is conversing with Mademoiselle d'Amory?' "'Yes, I perceive whom you mean.' "'You observe how little he has the air of a person of condition. "'I was saying just now that I should not have thought him a gentleman "'if I had not seen him at this table.' "'Well, but the report,' said Madame Clerval, "'let me understand the subject of your distress.' "'Ah, oh, the subject of my distress,' replied Madame Chiron, "'this person whom nobody knows.' "'I beg pardon, madame, I did not consider what I said. "'This impertinent young man,' Having had the presumption to address my niece, has, I fear, given rise to a report that he had declared himself my admirer. Now only consider how very mortifying such a report must be. You, I know, will feel for my situation. A woman of my condition, think how degrading even the rumour of such an alliance must be. Degrading indeed, my poor friend, said Madame Clerval. "'You may rely upon it. I will contradict the report wherever I go.' As she said which, she turned her attention upon another part of the company, and Cavigny, who had hitherto appeared a grave spectator of the scene, now fearing he should be unable to smother the laugh that convulsed him, walked abruptly away. "'I perceive you do not know,' said the lady, who sat near Madame Chiron, "'that the gentleman you have been speaking of is Madame Clerval's nephew.' "'Impossible!' exclaimed Madame Chiron who now began to perceive that she had been totally mistaken in her judgment of Valancourt, and to praise him aloud with as much servility as she had before censured him with frivolous malignity. Emily, who during the greater part of this conversation had been so absorbed in thought as to be spared the pain of hearing it, was now extremely surprised by her aunt's praise of Valancourt, with whose relationship to Madame Clerval she was unacquainted, but she was not sorry when Madame Chiron, who, though she now tried to appear unconcerned, was really much embarrassed, prepared to withdraw immediately after supper. Montoni then came to hand Madame Chiron to her carriage, 
and Cavigny, with an arch solemnity of countenance, followed with Emily, who, as she wished them good night and drew up the glass, saw Valancourt among the crowd at the gates. Before the carriage drove off, he disappeared. Madame Chiron forbore to mention him to Emily, and as soon as they reached the chateau, they separated for the night. On the following morning, as Emily sat at breakfast with her aunt, a letter was brought to her, of which she knew the handwriting upon the cover, and as she received it with a trembling hand, Madame Chiron hastily inquired from whom it came. Emily, with her leave, broke the seal, and observing the signature of Valancourt, gave it on read to her aunt, who received it with impatience, and as she looked it over, Emily endeavoured to read on her countenance its contents. Having returned the letter to her niece, whose eyes asked if she might examine it, "'Yes, read it, child,' said Madame Chiron, in a manner less severe than she had expected, and Emily had perhaps never before so willingly obeyed her aunt. In this letter Valancourt said little of the interview of the preceding day, but concluded with declaring that he would accept his dismission from Emily only, and with entreating that she would allow him to wait upon her on the approaching evening. When she read this, she was astonished at the moderation of Madame Chiron, and looked at her with timid expectation as she said sorrowfully, "'What am I to say, madam?' "'Why, we must see the young man, I believe,' replied her aunt, "'and hear what he has further to say for himself. "'You may tell him he may come.' "'Emily dared scarcely credit what she heard. "'Yet stay,' added Madame Chiron. "'I will tell him so myself.' "'She called for pen and ink. "'Emily, still not daring to trust the emotions she felt, "'and almost sinking beneath them, her surprise would have been less had she overheard on the preceding evening what Madame Chiron had not forgotten, that Valancourt was the nephew of Madame Clerval. What were the particulars of her aunt's note Emily did not learn, but the result was a visit from Valancourt in the evening, whom Madame Chiron received alone, and they had a long conversation before Emily was called down. When she entered the room her aunt was conversing with complacency, and she saw the eyes of Valancourt as he impatiently rose, animated with hope. "'We have been talking over this affair,' said Madame Chiron. "'The Chevalier has been telling me that the late Monsieur Clerval "'was the brother of the Countess de Duvarney, his mother. "'I only wish he had mentioned this relationship to Madame Clerval before. "'I certainly should have considered that circumstance "'as a sufficient introduction to my house.' "'Valancourt bowed, and was going to address Emily, but her aunt prevented him. "'I have therefore consented that you shall receive his visits, "'and—' Though I will not bind myself by any promise, or say that I shall consider him as my nephew, yet I shall permit the intercourse, and shall look forward to any further connection, as an event which may possibly take place in a course of years, provided the chevalier rises in his profession, or any circumstance occurs, which may make it prudent for him to take a wife. But Monsieur Valancourt will observe, and you too, Emily, that till that happens, I positively forbid any thoughts of marrying. Emily's countenance during this coarse speech varied every instant, and towards its conclusion her distress had so much increased that she was on the point of leaving the room. Valancourt, meanwhile, scarcely less embarrassed, did not dare to look at her, for whom he was thus distressed. But when Madame Chiron was silent, he said, "'Flattering, madam, as your approbation is to me, highly as I am honoured by it, I have yet so much to fear that I scarcely dare to hope.' "'Pray, sir, explain yourself,' said Madame Chiron, an unexpected requisition which embarrassed Valancourt again, and almost overcame him with confusion, at circumstances on which, had he been only a spectator of the scene, he would have smiled. 
till I receive Mademoiselle St. Aubert's permission to accept your indulgence, said he falteringly, till she allows me to hope. Oh, is that all? interrupted Madame Cheron. Well, I will take upon me to answer for her. But at the same time, sir, give me leave to observe to you that I am her guardian, and that I expect in every instance that my will is hers. As she said this, she rose and quitted the room, leaving Emily and Valancourt in a state of mutual embarrassment. And when Valancourt's hopes enabled him to overcome his fears, and to address her with the zeal and sincerity so natural to him, it was a considerable time before she was sufficiently recovered to hear with distinctness his solicitations and inquiries. The conduct of Madame Chiron in this affair had been entirely governed by selfish vanity. Valancourt, in his first interview, had with great candour laid open to her the true state of his present circumstances and his future expectancies, and she, with more prudence than humanity, had absolutely and abruptly rejected his suit. She wished her niece to marry ambitiously, not because she desired to see her in possession of the happiness which rank and wealth are usually believed to bestow, but because she desired to partake of the importance which such an alliance would give. When, therefore, she discovered that Valancourt was the nephew of a person of so much consequence as Madame Clerval, she became anxious for the connection, since the prospect it afforded of future fortune and distinction for Emily promised the exaltation she coveted for herself. Her calculations concerning fortune in this alliance were guided rather by her wishes than by any hint of Valancourt or strong appearance of probability. And when she rested her expectation on the wealth of Madame Clerval, she seemed totally to have forgotten that the latter had a daughter. Valancourt, however, had not forgotten this circumstance, and the consideration of it had made him so modest in his expectations for Madame Clerval that he had not even named the relationship in his first conversation with Madame Chiron. But whatever might be the future fortune of Emily, the present distinction which the connection would afford for herself was certain, since the splendor of Madame Clerval's establishment was such as to excite the general envy and partial imitation of the neighborhood. Thus had she consented to involve her niece in an engagement to which she saw only a distant and uncertain conclusion, with as little consideration of her happiness as when she had so precipitately forbade it. For though she herself possessed the means of rendering this union not only certain but prudent, yet to do so was no part of her present intention. From this period Valancourt made frequent visits to Madame Charon, and Emily passed in his society the happiest hours she had known since the death of her father. They were both too much engaged by the present moments to give serious consideration to the future. They loved and were beloved and saw not that the very attachment which formed the delight of their present days might possibly occasion the sufferings of years. Meanwhile, Madame Chiron's intercourse with Madame Clerval became more frequent than before, and her vanity was already gratified by the opportunity of proclaiming, wherever she went, the attachment that subsisted between their nephew and niece. Montoni was now also become a daily guest at the chateau, and Emily was compelled to observe that he really was a suitor, and a favoured suitor to her aunt. Thus passed the winter months, not only in peace, but in happiness, to Valancourt and Emily, the station of his regiment being so near Toulouse as to allow this frequent intercourse. The pavilion on the terrace was the favourite scene of their interviews, and there Emily, with Madame Chiron, would work, while Valancourt read aloud works of genius and taste, listened to her enthusiasm, expressed his own, and caught new opportunities of observing that their minds were formed to constitute the happiness of each other, 
the same taste, the same noble and benevolent sentiments animating each. End of Volume 1, Chapter 12b